To me, generosity is the overflow of a thankful heart, where nothing is too much bother, where no one is beyond reach, and where the cost doesn't matter. I think of generosity, I think of a posture of humility, um, but also of gratitude. The vow of generosity is a, is a challenge to me, uh, because for me it's about how do I reflect God. As generosity is both given and received, it starts and ends with the heart bringing joy to both the giver and the receiver. As I think about God's generosity towards us, it's infinite. Uh, I could spend all day just basking in how much he's given back to me. And I often hear you can't outgive God, but I certainly want to try to give back as much as possible. Um, and so that'll be a lifetime of giving and, and just pouring that out as an act of worship. My authentic self with who I am, with my experiences, with my struggles, and to share that with people in a generous way. I think that generosity means being kind and giving people what they need. But it's about how can I better reflect, and that challenge of how can I better reflect my Creator uh, and His generosity to me in my everyday. I have to ask, am I giving what's required of me or what the Lord is trying to draw out of me? But I also believe that I have to keep that same heart open for the Lord wanting to be generous in my life so that I can then take it and turn it back out again. And every The whole design for Christian faith and practice is that what you've been given, you should be giving away. So as, as much as he's given me, I want to give to others and reflect that love as well. Laditza. It's a name you might not have heard of, but it holds an incredible story of an outrageous atrocity, but also tremendous generosity. To understand it, we have to go back to 1941, Czechoslovakia, where Laditza was a small village 20 minutes from the capital of Prague. It was a small community of about 500 residents. Most of the men worked in the local mines and steelworks, while women helped in the nearby fields. It was at this time Reinhard Heydrich, a high-ranking Nazi officer who was in charge of a Nazi SS and was responsible for many of the horrors of the Holocaust, was stationed in Prague to help eliminate any rebellion. Hitler was a close personal friend of Heydrich, and he often referred to Heydrich as the man with the Iron Heart. Heydrich set about deporting and exporting many in Prague to suppress any resistance. Described as a campaign of terror, it led to the loss of countless innocent lives in that country. In May 1942, an assassination attempt was made by Czech paratroopers Gabik and Kubis on Heydrich in Prague. And although the attempt didn't go to plan, it was successful, and Heydrich died shortly after the attack. But these two individuals and the countries behind the assassination had no idea the terrible chain of events this would lead to. The German authorities began a violent and dramatic search for the assassins, with 10,000 men arrested on the first day of searching, and many being killed. They frantically searched for many days through the towns and villages of Prague, but they still had no idea who had carried out the attack and where they were hiding. Hitler was furious at the death of his friend and wanted to strike out, and so following some false information twisted by the authorities, the small Czech village of Lidice became chosen as a target of all the vengeance.
Kepler was so angry, he didn't just want to destroy it. He wanted to destroy the entire memory of it. He declared publicly, the Dietze shall die forever. And so late at night, on the 9th of June, the Dietze was surrounded by armed soldiers, and that following morning all of the men of the village were killed, women were sent to concentration camps, and the children who survived were taken away. In all, 192 men, 60 women and 88 children were killed when the Czech village of Lidice, near Prague, was destroyed on June 10th, 1942. Anything that was still standing was bulldozed. The remains in the town's cemetery were dug up and destroyed. Even the course of the river that ran through the centre of the village was altered. Ponds were filled in, trees were felled, and all the rubble was cleared from the site. The name of the village was removed from official records. Maps, books, libraries, anything that showed the village or any record of it were destroyed. They intended to erase all existence of Lidice. Unlike many other massacres at that time, this one was publicly and proudly announced to the world. The destruction had even been filmed. Hitler once again declared, Lidice shall die forever. But when Dr. Barnett Stross, a family doctor and city councillor of the small British city Stoke-on-Trent, heard Hitler's oppressive declaration across the world, Stross replied with a simple and powerful statement, Lidice shall live. Stross had over many years worked with miners in Stoke-on-Trent and the surrounding areas, and when he heard the shocking and terrible news, he strongly believed that together they could do something. At that time, he wrote, the miner's lamp dispels the shadows on the coal face, and so it can also send a ray of light across the sea to those who struggle in darkness. And it was with this vision, a powerful campaign was born. The Lidice Shall Live movement, conceived in Britain very soon after the Nazis' brutal blotting out of that Czechoslovak village, received its official blessing when President Benesch recently visited Hanley in Staffordshire. He inspected a guard of honour composed of many service units and he met a number of British miners. It is their solemn pledge that just as the miner's lamp lightens the coalface, so they must and will bring light to comrades now struggling in the darkness of Europe. The Lidice Shall Live campaign was officially launched on the 6th of September 1942 and the opening event was attended by over 3,000 people, barely three months after the atrocity in Lidice. It was a collection and collaboration of coal miners in Stoke-on-Trent and their surrounding area who helped to found the organisation and set up the event. In this campaign, regular miners of the area, who were often underpaid and working in difficult situations, committed to give a day's wage a week to the campaign for as long as it would take to raise enough funds to rebuild Lidice. This was a time when food was strongly rationed, money was fast depleting, and in 1941 it was very unclear whether the Allies would even win the war. But despite all that, this small mining community pledged all they could give to help people they had never met, a village they had never seen, and a country they had never visited. Today we pledge ourselves to rebuild Lidice, and we renew that faith and determination to see this struggle through to the bitter end 
and our collaboration, Ligitsa, God willing, will, shall really live again. Following the incredible launch, Stoss wrote a letter dated 10th of August. The miners have said to the world at large, and the Nazis in particular, that their comrades of Lodice would never be forgotten, that the widows and orphans would be resourced, that the village itself would be rebuilt, and it would stand as a lasting monument that this crime against humanity should never succeed. And the incredible thing is that as the years went by, they did it. Can you believe it? They did it. This small community raised £32,000, which equates to over a million in today's standards. This was during wartime oppression, incredible hardships, and in the face of possible defeat. And they did it. And it wasn't just Stoke-on-Trent who met this act of violence with generosity and compassion. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, funds were raised for an ambulance aircraft named the Spirit of Lodice, which served to help many throughout Europe. In Tabor in South Dakota, Coventry in the UK, Chicago, Santiago in Chile, streets and entire neighbourhoods were renamed to Lodice. In Mexico, Venezuela, Panam and Brazil, entire towns were renamed Lodice. In Phillips, Wisconsin, a memorial was formed, and Lodice even became a popular baby girl's name. As Edvard Bennett, the Czech president, declared in light of these acts of generosity and in the presence of the miners of that significant first meeting in Stoke-on-Trent, Lodice lives in the hearts of the people. And so incredibly, in 1947, after the war, building began on the site. A delegation of 20 people from Stoke-on-Trent, including the president of the Miners Association, travelled to Lodice to help lay the foundations for the new village. Stross, who was among the group, helped to organise and plant a rose garden of peace with a collection of 23,000 roses from 32 countries, connecting the site of New Lodice with the memorial of the old. The mass grave of the men was marked by a cross with a crown of thorns. For the world, and Czech people in particular, it was a moment of tremendous generosity, which was summed so brilliantly by an interview with one of the returning women. What amazed me most was the incredible contrast between how we felt about mankind after our experience from the three years in the camp, how much faith we'd lost in it, and how uplifting Dr. Stross's following endeavours were for us. It was like a touch from above. We realised how much good there can be in people. We will never be able to forget how much they did for us. Lives, communities and countries transformed by the simple act of generosity from a small community of coal miners, an act that brought Lodice from oppression to freedom, from death to life. That was the story of Lodice, and I hope you found it as encouraging as I did. There's so much in there, isn't there? A community who act in generosity together, a response of love to just terrible evil and hate, there's also this incredible story of death being overcome through an act of generous love, which reminds me of a very old and significant story in my life and others. It's also fascinating that initially the Czech government in exile suggested that the British government should retaliate. like They wanted uh, an announcement that every time the Germans destroyed a village like Lodice, the RAF would destroy a German village or town with bombing raids. 
But instead of launching this retaliation, you get this building of a foundation of a new village to, to resurrect what was destroyed. It's an incredible story and a challenging message as we hear reports of all that's going on in the world today. How are we responding in generosity to those who've lost homes and towns and communities? I also hope you're enjoying the podcast just generally as a whole. We've had a little break as we're constantly updating and exploring what infinitum is and how it can be used best to help others and what that means for for getting things ready and organised. And we've got lots of exciting stuff coming up in the podcast, including an incredible story to share with you next month about mission. But for now, I'm going to hand across to Danielle and Phil as they explore further to us the vow of generosity. <laughs> okay, let's so, talk about generosity. generosity. Well, I think generosity is really interesting. I, I, uh, I mean, there's so many words we could have used that that focus the the disciple upon choices they're going to make during the day, and I think generosity in its broadest sense, is about the choices we make. Choices about our mindset, you know, choices about our attitudes, choices about our behaviour, choices about what we do with our money, choices about how we use our language. And and we chose generosity. Um, and again, those of you that aren't from a Western urbanised context, forgive us, because, you know, we live in a narcissistic, hedonistic world that's utterly obsessed with the entertainment of self and the fulfilment of self. And um, the, the power of generosity when it's experienced can be truly transformational and prophetic. So we thought to ourselves, what's the most powerful thing we could do in a society like ours to express something of the wonder of this boundless love of God? And we thought that would be generosity. And um, because at the heart of the boundless gospel is a generous, extravagant, or as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, you know, God has lavished his love upon us, extreme, completely over-the-top love. We want to be those kind of people. And we want to fight against a stingy spirit. Yeah. I mean, there is such a stingy... So, like, in the world, it's a take spirit. I feel like in the, you know, sort of in in combating life in the world, generosity is the opposite of take. So it's give instead of take. And take, take, take is like the spirit of the world. So like you grab it, whatever you can, whatever's free, whatever's going, you grab that and then you hang on to that because you rightfully earn that and that's yours and you don't let anyone take it from you. So there's that spirit of take. But I also think in the church, there's this incredible spirit of stingy, yep. you know, where I, I, I talk to waitresses who just like can't stand working on Sundays. And I'm like, why? Like the, it, the place is full, right? Like on Sundays, Christians love to eat. That's one thing we got down. And they said, yeah, but you're the worst tippers. It's my worst day. Right. And I thought, look at that. We like represented God by, <laughs> by our stinginess. We are like the worst tippers. And then I never even knew that. But then I started paying attention to it. Whenever I'm around, you know, sort of a, a Christian table, I pay attention to, to how much I tip. You know, now I like double the whatever I'm thinking I double yeah. just to like fight against the spirit of stinginess. But I think that spirit of stinginess just creeps in. And I think we, you know, at least in my tradition, we valued cheap, you know, because we thought it was good stewardship. And, yeah. it, and in some ways it was, you know, you don't want to be like lavish in the sense that we lavish on ourselves. We wanted to be really selfless and all those sort of things, but it, it manifested itself in a spirit of cheap. Yeah. I think I've tried to cast that puppy out of some people and it just returned seven times stronger. You know, like it's a hard spirit to get rid yeah. of. What well, is clear from your genes, you haven't moved beyond that personally yet, but, uh, <laughs> but I have holes in my, genes, you have holes in your... which is but, really a symbol no, of holiness. Not exactly. Cheapness. Exactly. No, but I think, I think that's really powerful because I think the, you know, if you ask people, and you, you mentioned it on one of the other podcasts we did about, you know, what are the words people use to describe Christians? Right. Yeah. Apart from someone like Mother Teresa. Right. 
The word won't be loving, kind, generous. It'll be mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. It'll be negative. It'll be cynical. It'll be about no. Mm-hmm. Whereas, of course, if the gospel is anything, it's a gospel of yes. It's right. God's big yes to the world, this generous right. giving of his son. It's a big yes to the world. And so we want to be people who have a, an expanding capacity right. to express generosity. And um, But actually, in, in the hidden place as well. So, you know, I'm... I think I'm a generous guy. I love to give, particularly when people are watching. But no, seriously, I, I, love, I get real joy out of giving. Um, went away for a trip with my family recently, and, and when he said to me, he said, it was about her 50th birthday, he said, but what do you want from this? He said, what do you want to do? Because someone wants to do this, and the other one, one of the girls want to do this, and Jake want to do this. He said, what do you want to do, Diane? I said, you know what, Diane? I said, all I want is to see you having a great time. Said, yeah, but what do you want? I said, no, no, you don't understand. I love being involved in giving something to someone who enjoy? I love that. So right. I'm good. I've got that bit covered. That, that generous bit. Right. What I find a lot harder is being generous to spirit. People who don't like me. Right. People I know that have been rude about me and critical and told lies about me and been cynical about me. Mm. People that that are harsh and negative uh, towards me. I find that a lot more difficult to be mm. generous, which is not just about being loving or you know or not giving back, but it's actually no, no. Being generous is I go beyond not just reacting. Mm. Or turn the other cheek. I actually walk towards and say, not I'm only going to give, you know, in one sense, give you the other cheek to hit, but I'm going to give you something to hit me with. I'm going to go beyond that. Because that's what generosity is. And I find it, I can't believe I'm using my hands here, sorry, but I find it, um, okay, I find it easy to be generous to those in need. I find it easy to be generous to orphans in Africa. I find it easy to be generous to people that I love. But people I don't like, people I really find it very difficult to be around, this vow has really challenged me to say, Philip, what does the spirit of Jesus look like in relation to your response to that person? And at that point, generosity as a vow becomes really, really important. Okay, now here's, this is absolutely essential, and here's what's really been helpful to me is I, the, the symbol we use for generosity and in the prayer posture, we open our hands. So we have open hands. And the idea is that we're living open-handed in a closed-fisted culture, so it's the opposite spirit of take. But what's been happening to me, I read this uh, recent article in Vanishing Grace by Philip Yancey, and he interviews this palliative care worker nurse who's been doing palliative care for like ever. And she's known as the most loving and kind and generous person ever. And he just says like, how do you keep that up? Like every day you meet someone who's dying and then you invest in them and they die. And then you start again, you know, and he's just like, how do you do that? And she said, you know what I do is I pause outside of the door before I go in every day. She said, practically what I do is I, I open my hands. And she said, I imagine this big picture of heavenly resource, like love and generosity and goodness and grace being poured out. And I just open my hands as a symbol of opening my life and I receive. And I just, I receive and I receive and I receive. And then she said, when I open the door, I just look for where to give it. And I thought about that posture we use. And ever since I've read that story, I've been... I've been using that posture, generous posture, as a receiving and a giving posture. So first I say, you know, all the inexhaustible resources of heaven. Because this is the, the trick about a lack of generosity is a, it, it's a lack. It's a poverty spirit. It's to say there won't be enough. So I don't forgive because I think I'm going to run out of forgiveness. Or I don't give mercy because I think I'm going to run out of mercy. Or I don't give money because I think I'm going to run out of money. And so it's this idea that we will run out of the resource that makes us stingy. And um, so it's the opposite of a poverty spirit. And so what I do is I say all the inexhaustible resources of heaven that are mine, mercy, 
right? I mean, new every morning, literally like a topped up credit card for me to spend every day. Like it's not mine, it's heaven's, it's God has lent to me to give out. So I can be way more generous with something that actually comes from a source outside of myself. So I've used that prayer posture as this means of receiving and then also leaving instead of taking, actually leaving my hands open so then I can look for where to distribute it in the world. That's really powerful. I, yeah, I've got time to tell a story. I, I um, it's a few years old. This story, forgive me, but and this kind of rap, you know kind of sits within the uh, surrender and the generosity bucket. But uh, a few few years ago, many many years ago, um, when I was traveling a lot and speaking at church, I went to a, a church uh, in the morning and um, I laid out a challenge. I was talking about this concept of surrender and generosity. And I said, you know, lots of you say to me, you know, I say my, my view is that materialism and things and stuff is probably one of the biggest hurdles to the church in the West being able to be used of God the way he wants to. And, said, and you may disagree with me. You may be sitting there and saying, hey, Phil Wall, that might be an issue for you, but actually I've got it sorted. And I'll say, if you say that to me, great, just try one thing. I'd like you to go home today. I'd like you to find the most expensive thing in your home. I'd like you to find someone who needs it and give it to them. And on that day, come back, look me in the eye and say to me, Phil, I got it. And I say, on that day, I go, I agree. And so I challenge you all to do that. Now, often what happens is parents will start complaining their children have gone away and given all these things. But I say, hey, you want your kids to follow Jesus? You know, this is partly what it means. But on this occasion, in the evening, um, I'm getting ready. Uh, I, I, was, I was saying goodbye to people at the end of the service, standing at the door. And this older couple came up to me. And, uh, and they both looked kind of quite disturbed. You know, I'm thinking, are they crying? You know? And, um, and, 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 and he, he, his eyes were really moist. I think, oh, no, I've offended someone again because I'm very clumsy in those days, more clumsy than even now in what I would say. As <laughs> so they came up to me, and, and um, the, the lady took hold of my hand. She put some in my hand and closed my hand. She said, Phil, she said, we went home this morning and thought very seriously about what you said. So we want you to take this and have it and sell it and use the money uh, for the great work you're doing amongst young people. Yeah. So I opened my hand. In the palm of my hand was a platinum 22 diamond eternity ring that he'd given her, I think, on their 25th wedding anniversary. And this is an older couple now, you know. So I got a bit choked up. I'm going... And so I said, I said, look, that's really kind of you. So I went to take it out, and I went to hand it back, and then she closed my hand over it again. And then he put his hand on top of hers. And he said, Phil, he said, no, you must keep it. Because we want Jesus to know there is nothing that we won't give for him he gave it all to us in the first place those are two people who know what the value of generosity and surrender look like yeah. and they, uh, they yeah. really really taught me yeah it's beautiful and it's that spirit of generosity really that's infectious yeah, isn't it because it absolutely. makes no sense I mean it's, it's the personification of grace but it's also overwhelming sometimes obviously you, you know many people would have seen the, the, the um, musical theatre production Les Miserables yeah. and yeah. of course there, there are these two moments yeah. Where on the one hand, you know, um, the kind of main protagonist gets caught stealing, mm-hmm. and when the police bring him back to the priest, we, oh, okay, so you forgot these, and having you know been uh, robbed, mm-hmm. the guy his only response is, "Well, okay, so let me give you more," mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So there's this moment of generosity mm-hmm. that then is sown into that man's life. That then many years later, mm-hmm. when he has his kind of main enemy, the police captain, chasing him down, trying to put him back in chains comes after him when he forgives him and doesn't kill him and sets him free yeah. and expresses that against that extravagance Re- Re- yeah. reciprocal yeah 
he can't deal with this and tops himself, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And and I remember sitting watching that once, and, and at the end of it, you know, as a follower of Jesus, I just want to stand and say, right, let me explain what this is all about to the whole crowd there, and you know, as everyone's mm-hmm. clapping and applauding. But I don't want to case. I've seen it three, four times now, mm-hmm. and uh, and I can't watch the movie again. I watch the movie, and I just I just find it um, overwhelming, you know, emotionally to watch. But actually, I watched it. I think it's the second time. I can't remember. But I got really uncomfortable. I suddenly thought, if I was that priest, what would I have done? Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been what he did. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was really quite uncomfortable. Yes. Really uncomfortable. I read the book, and I've seen the musical as many times as I can. It's like my favorite. I mean, it's the gospel story. Yeah. It's so profound. It makes every other musical just seem shallow, I think. I'm always like, oh, that was great music and dancing, but like seriously, like where's Les Mis? Yeah. And um, uh, the part where Jean Valjean receives the silverware and then finds himself in this revelation and actually what happened was the generosity the grace of the bishop um brings light and clarity that he has actually become the very thing that he hated which is the monster right that it is the problem is it's in him this stinginess this take spirit this criminal he's become the criminal even though he's protested that he's not that for his whole entire life and so this generous spirit has unlocked actually the revelation that he is the very thing he, he never wants to be. And it, it literally leads to his conversion. And in the book, it's very clear that that's what happens. You know, he's converted uh, and he realizes that he's become this, this monstrous thing. And it's so profound. I read the book on a plane and I was literally like just bawling on the plane. And this guy was sitting behind, beside me going like, uh, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm a monster too. You know, the guy's just like, I'm a monster too. I'm just like falling apart on the plane because it's so profound. And I think that's that generous spirit. Like it literally is so profound that it unlocks uh, both responses. Like that's what Jean, the, or the, the enemy guy, the yeah. law guy, he can't, he just can't take it. I mean, he literally has to off himself because yeah. to receive it is to actually be converted uh, or it's not at all, you know? So I just, I think it's a very profound. And then some, some people were thinking, I remember early on in the process, we really struggled with not making that vow of simplicity yeah. because we're prone towards simplicity, meaning, you know, we don't want to be worldly. But we really, I just, we found as we bantered it around and we talked about it and we sort of were like, what, what are the elements of simplicity that are, that are really attractive to us? And we thought simplicity in its deepest form is generosity. That's what it is. And so we thought, you know, because we lean towards stinginess in religious uh, circles and also in humanness, we thought leaning into generosity will actually create ways for people to be simple, but in this grace-filled, extravagant, love, joy uh, joyful way so that it was super helpful the vow of generosity is just beautiful yeah just one more thing we may not include this but I, but I think that's right around <laughs> the generosity piece I think is right because the other thing it tackles yeah as well the greed and you know avarice and envy the other thing generosity tackles yeah uh, is entitlement yes and mm-hmm. I've been around religious people for a long time mm-hmm. and it is amazing how often you come across people who think the religious system they're part of, the society, their family, their parents, their church, God owes them. Mm-hmm. And when they don't get what they're owed, what they're due, you know, they're going to this terrible place. And I'm thinking, from where do we get that thing? And I think the, you know, 
not to be psychobabble about it, but, you know, Maslow, you know, around his needs hierarchy, you know, he says, you know, the, the final need that we seek to meet is self-actualization. Mm-hmm. And, of course, for certainly in the Western world, you know, a huge percentage of the church population are middle-class people mm-hmm. who've basically answered all of those main questions mm-hmm. in terms of security, provision, everything else. So they're only left with that last question, which is self-actualization. How do I self-actualize? How do I be fully human? And so that, in my experience, it turns into one of two ways. So one, it turns in on itself, mm-hmm. and it becomes too easily hedonism, mm-hmm. entitlement, and then a kind of form of narcissism, mm-hmm. you know, which eventually, as you know, psychologists will, will, will attest, it will eventually end in, in nihilism, because what's the point? You can only entertain yourself mm-hmm. and spoil yourself so many times. Right. Or it turns outwards and says, wow, how blessed am I? Right. What great opportunity I have to in my life to right. do great things. Right. And so I think part of the fruit of of this middle-class context in which the vast majority of people that will ever listen to this mm-hmm. find themselves mm-hmm. is this spirit of generosity challenges any smattering of entitlement that you might choose to embrace. Right. Say, actually, it's not about what you're going to get. It's mm-hmm. only about what you're going to give because you can never scratch the surface of what you've already received. So you're giving out of that excess. Yeah, you know, Phil, the, that's fascinating because I, I just finished writing a book called The Zombie Gospel, which is How to Be Human, Thoughts on How to Be Human. And, um, you know, zombies by definition are, are things that consume with no regard for what they're consuming. So they've literally just become consumption machines and they're horrifying because of course it's like a mirror on a society that's become a consuming machine. And so the question I felt like was raised in that whole thing was like, what does it mean to be human? And that generous thing you know that generosity that the opposite of consumption the opposite of having no regard for the person that you can see like having no regard just being a consumer the opposite of that is a generous spirit and it's how we rediscover our own humanity uh, which is really a reflection of god so it's kind of this beauty i think i think you said it really beautifully and i'd like to write it down so i can put it in my book i'm a beautiful man (laughs) 